Terrell Mitchell, a handsome black attorney, put his skills to use as he argued in behalf of his client. The state's witness has not shown up to any depositions, argued Terrell, and at this time the defense moves for a dismissal. The judge then took her focus off of Terrell and turned it towards the prosecutor and asked, and what is the state's position? The state requests another chance to secure the victim's testimony, replied the prosecutor. The judge paused and then took a few minutes to look through a file that was placed on her desk. Well, according to the records, you have already sent out three subpoenas and the victim still hasn't shown. Let the record now show that your request is denied and the defense's motion to dismiss is granted. Thank you, Judge, Terrell said as he exited the courtroom. As Terrell tried to make the elevator, he saw it close before he was able to reach it. He then decided to occupy his time by checking his text messages while he waited. After he hit delete a couple of times, Terrell came across a message that placed a smile on his face. Just texting to remind you of our, of our appointment that we have in about an hour read the text. Within seconds, the elevator door opened up. One of the six people who were on the elevator had already pushed the button to Terrell's floor. As Terrell waited to reach his floor, the crowd made him wish that he had taken the stairs. Finally, Terrell had reached his stop. Once he exited, he began to strut through the courthouse with a look of confidence. As Terrell walked out of the doors and into the parking lot, he reached into his pocket and grabbed a hold of a remote starter. He pressed the button. The engine roar of a brand new Bentley sounded like music to his ears. Terrell enjoyed the taste of success. Once he bit into it, he acquired an appetite for more. He had amassed a great deal of wealth, which was a far cry from the poverty-stricken community he had been raised in. As he drove to his office, his mind was centered primarily on the appointment that was about to start in an hour. It was obvious that Terrell loved his job, and the meetings just came along with the territory. Mandy, a nicely shaped white female, paraded around her living room in just her panties and bra. The tattoos that decorated her body were partially concealed by the limited amount of clothing that she was wearing. As he sashayed to her desk, her ass swayed with each step that she took. She then sat down at a chair that was propped in front of her computer. As she turned on her computer, she went to a dating site that she had been known to visit from time to time. After she logged on, she began scrolling through pictures in an attempt to locate someone who caught her eye. Her search began to look futile until she stumbled across a picture with the name Rail 34. Driven by curiosity, she opened up his profile by pressing right-click. After skimming through his profile, she believed that she had found what she was looking for. She then showed her interest by leaving him a message. This was rare for Mandy because she was used to having men chase her, but there was something different about this man who prevailed to intrigue her. Terrell walked through the door of his law firm and headed towards his office to kick back and relax. As he sat down, his paralegal, Tisha, entered the doorway and placed several manila folders on his desk. Okay, and what's this, Terrell asked. The motion to suppress for the Beasley case and Robinson's petition to transfer, replied Tisha. Okay, I need you to do me a favor, responded Terrell. I have an appointment in about an hour, so could you please take these to the courthouse to be filed? Sure thing, said Tisha. Oh, and after you do that, you can take the rest of the day off, Terrell added. Tisha then became excited and replied by telling Terrell thank you. As Terrell reclined back in his chair, he closed his eyes, and within minutes he drifted off to sleep. Terrell's wife Camille was at home consumed with preparing a meal for her husband. Camille was once considered a very sexy black woman, but was now beginning to show signs of aging. 
Even with a few wrinkles and some strands of gray, she was still very appealing to the eyes. Once looked at as one of the top attorneys in the city, Camille stopped practicing after she was involved in a head-on collision. The accident left her with permanent scarring on her face, as well as having to have one of her legs amputated. There was one thing that deepened Camille's sorrow even more and made her feel like less of a woman. The painfulest part of the injuries that she sustained was that it caused her not to be able to have children. What she wanted most was a child by the man that she considered the best thing that ever happened to her. As a result, Camille struggled with low self-esteem and was diagnosed with severe depression. For 15 years, she had been married to Terrell, but it seemed that he was now starting to lose interest. Camille had began to strategically place candles in various places around their living room. After placing the bottle of wine on ice, she began smiling, thinking about the romantic evening that she had planned for the two of them. Terrell's short nap was cut short by the sound of his phone ringing. Hello, said Terrell as he answered. Hi, babe, his wife replied. How's your day going, she then asked. Long and just got longer, said her husband. Sounding disappointed, Camille then asked her husband, so when do you think you're going to be home? Well, I don't know, said Terrell. I have an appointment with a client, then I have to read through several case laws. Terrell then heard the bell ringing, letting him know that someone had just entered through the front door. Terrell, in an effort to get his wife off the phone, told her, looks like my appointment just walked through the door. Okay then, Camille said, saddened as she hung up the phone. As Terrell walked out of his office, he was first greeted by the scent of the perfume that permeated through the atmosphere. As he continued to walk, he stopped in his tracks to admire the beauty that now stood in his lobby. Are you Terrell, the woman asked. Terrell then stated, you must be Trish. The woman began to walk closer. She then extended her hand to shake Terrell's. As Terrell took hold of hers, he stood mesmerized at the Caucasian beauty that stood in front of him. Her shoulder-length hair touched the straps of her brightly colored dress that clung to her body, leaving nothing to the imagination. The dress showcased every curve of her figure. Due to the lighting, her breasts were easily seen through the thin layer of fabric that she wore. She began to smile at Terrell as she caught him surveying her well-put-together body. Your profile pictures don't do you justice, Terrell said. Tristan asked him, is that your way of telling me that you like what you see? Love it, Terrell said, and can't wait to see more, he then added. What I don't, don't like to keep my man waiting, she said while motioning for Terrell to come closer. So what are we waiting for, Terrell asked while inching his way towards her. I don't know. You're the one that still has his, clo his clothes on, she said while loosening his belt. Terrell then responded. I don't know if you noticed or not, young lady, but you're still dressed yourself. I wouldn't actually call having on no panties being totally dressed, replied Trish. She then started to walk backwards, still facing focusing her eyes on Terrell. Trish then began to take the straps from off of her shoulders as the dress fell down to the carpet. Terrell was overcome with the desire to touch and taste the flesh that she now started to rub her fingers against. He couldn't wait any longer. Terrell then proceeded to lock the door and close the blinds. As Terrell turned the knob, he entered the front door of his newly remodeled living room. He was met by the barks from his dog Pepper. His wife Camille also showed her excitement by smiling as their eyes met. Terrell, plagued by fatigue, paid no attention to the see-through gown that his wife was wearing. Camille began to kiss him. She had hoped that he would follow suit and return the favor. I missed you, she whispered as she playfully traced the length of his crotch with her fingers. With her other hand, she slowly began to slide it up Terrell's shirt. I missed you too, Terrell said. 
Then he proceeded to pull away from his wife while stating, I'm sorry, but it's been a long day. I'm just tired. Camille felt disappointed that her advances didn't provoke the response that she attended. Okay, she said while taking her hand from under his shirt. As Terrell walked towards the steps, Camille stood heartbroken, believing that another man was getting the attention that she craved. Camille stayed downstairs, drowning her sorrows in the wine that she had put on ice. As she burned the candles while playing slow music, she disregarded the wine glasses, choosing to drink straight from the bottle of Moscato. Once the bottle was empty, she staggered up the steps, falling into a deep sleep as soon as she hit the bed. Camille, still half asleep, could feel Terrell placing himself inside of her. Her being as wet as she was, she welcomed his morning hardness. She wanted him. Mmm, she moaned as he felt she felt the initial thrust that he gave. She let out another moan as she began to grip hold of the sheets. Eager to meet his next stroke, she raised her ass in an attempt to greet it. This time, it felt deeper inside of her. She proceeded to bite her lips as she grinded her ass against his pelvis. This time, she did the pumping, controlling the tempo to her liking. He then pulled her hair as the two began matching stroke for stroke. She could feel Terrell getting harder inside of her, and she recognized that feeling. So she pumped even faster because she knew that he was on the verge of climaxing. She wanted it, she welcomed it, and then she felt it. As he groaned, his body began to shiver with his release. He then got up, leaving her to lay alone in the soaking wet sheets. That was it. No I love you and no signs of affection, just the feeling of her being used. Camille fell back asleep because for the moment that was good enough for her. Her feelings were truly hurt when she woke up to the sound of Terrell's car driving off with no goodbye kiss. Walking into the office, Terrell greeted his paralegal. Good morning, Tisha. Hey, Terrell, she replied. Oh, and Terrell, before I forget, the state replied to those motions that we filed. I don't know why. It's not like they stand a chance, Terrell said. I put them in your mailbox, Terrell. Thank you, Tisha. As Terrell walked into his office, he grabbed the papers from out of the mailbox. He briefly looked at them as he walked towards his desk. Putting the papers aside, Terrell logged in on his computer. The papers can wait, he thought. What Terrell had on his mind was checking the inbox on the dating site that he was addicted to. Terrell saw that he had two new messages. The first one that he saw really had no interest, he really had no interest in responding to, but it was the second one that he came across that really got his attention. There was nothing fancy about the message that he read. It was just a simple hi, but this was enough to pique his interest. Normally, he wouldn't even reply to a message that seemed so basic, but it was her profile and her picture that made him respond. It made him hard to resist. He was smitten at, at first sight by her smile and inviting blue eyes as he scrolled through the pictures that she posted. They weren't the usual I'm ready to fuck looking pictures. No, hers were different, but Terrell could tell that the innocent look was deceiving. Terrell sent her a response introducing himself. To his surprise, within a couple of minutes she responded back. This was a telltale sign that his newfound interest was online. Seizing the, seizing the opportunity, Terrell let her know that her profile piqued his curiosity. And yours as well, she expressed back to him. Can I get a name to go with such a beautiful face, Terrell asked. My name is Mandy, she replied. After sending messages for a few more minutes, she asked Terrell, would you like to call me? Sure, Terrell responded, not wanting to sound too anxious. I only asked because you were taking too long to do so, she typed. With that, Mandy gave him her number. When would you like for me to call, asked Terrell. Stop being remedial, right now, she replied. Terrell wanted to play it cool, but deep down inside, 
he was hoping that she would say that. Terrell logged out as soon as he started calling the number. Hello, Mandy answered. Hey, it's me, said Terrell. Like I didn't know that, she responded. Ooh, sarcastic. I like that, Terrell replied. Oh, do you, Mandy said while cracking a grin. So tell me, Mandy, do you really look like the pictures that you got posted? Because you know that some people on that site lie. I guess you're going to have to see for yourself, she said. Without missing a beat, Terrell replied, I would love to. Then pick the place, sir. How about the steakhouse on 5th and Main, Terrell suggested. What time, Mandy asked. Lunch, Terrell told her. I usually take it around 12 p.m. Okay, then I'll see you there, Terrell. Terrell still had a few more hours to kill before his date. He decided to stop by the jail to visit a client that he had been meaning to see. Grabbing the client's file, Terrell left his office and headed to his car. The rush hour traffic was beginning to die down. This made the drive downtown less of a frustration. Within 10 minutes, Terrell was parking outside of the county jail. As he checked in with the guard, Terrell was escorted to the visiting room. He sat down and waited for what seemed like an eternity. Moments later, the guard walked in with the man with shoulder-length braids. The man's gold teeth seemed dull as he spoke. About time you kid, came, said the man. Sorry, I've been kind of busy, replied Terrell. So what's the latest, the man asked. Terrell then explained, we're scheduled for a hearing tomorrow. If I was a betting man, I'd say that you were going home. But as you know, nothing is a guarantee. I just need for you to be aware of that. That sounds like good news, the man said. The best news I've heard in the whole 10 months I've been locked up. Remember, there's no guarantees. The state's not going to just say uncle and just give up, especially with such a high-profile case. The man then looked at Terrell and said, All right, man, see you tomorrow. Well, just call me if you have any questions, replied Terrell as he shook the man's hand. Upon leaving, Terrell decided to head to the steakhouse. Even though it was a little early, it was never too early for a drink. As Mandy turned off the shower, she grabbed a towel. As she draped the towel around her body, it was hardly enough to contain her large breast. Her hair was cut short and dyed jet black. Mandy was used to receiving compliments for the hairstyle that she wore. She picked out a business suit that fitted snug around her backside. She loved showing off her nicely shaped ass. The shirt and blazer were styled in such a way that the opening would allow for her cleavage to be exposed. Makeup was not necessary because Mandy was a natural beauty. Her phone rang. Hello? What are you doing? Asking her, asked her boyfriend, Mike. I'm about to head out, she replied. Can I use your car, he asked her. No, Mike. I said that I was about to head out. Where are you going? To mind my own damn business, she replied. Don't get smart, Mandy. What you doing later, he asked. Working, Mike, she said, obviously annoyed at wanting to get off the phone. Can I borrow some money? Mike, no, you still owe me, and you know you don't have a job. Mandy, I promise I'll pay you back. I don't know, Mike. Call me back later. She then hung up the phone and headed out of the door. As Terrell finished his drink, he looked at the time on his watch. Seeing how it was getting close to 12 p.m., he began to think that he had gotten stood up. As he ordered another drink, he saw a sophisticated white woman walking through the door with confidence. She slowly looked around the dining room, scanning for a date. Their eyes met as Mandy recognized Terrell from her pictures. She walked over to the table as men and women both stared at her in, in attraction. Mandy, Terrell said as he stood up. Hi, Terrell, she replied as the two shook hands. Terrell then proceeded to pull out Mandy's seat for her. A gentleman, I like that, Mandy said in reference to his gesture. As the waiter walked up, he asked them if they needed more time. They both informed the waiter that they were ready to order. She chose a salad. Terrell selected the same. 
Mandy also ordered a double shot of Patron. A tequila woman, huh, said Terrell. Yeah, I am, and what are you drinking? Crown and Cloak responded Terrell. Good choice, she said. Now back to your question. So what do you think? Do I look like my pictures? Even better, he said. So what do you do, Terrell? I'm an attorney. Oh, interesting, she replied. And you, Mandy? I go to school. I'm studying to be a neurologist. Oh, that's good, Terrell responded. I'm also a dancer, she said. Terrell then asked, like a music video type of dancer, a ballet type of dancer? No, like a take your clothes off type of dancer, she replied. Terrell smiled. The look in his eyes showed the, that the last comment got his attention. So what do they call you? What's like your stage name, he asked. Sugar, she replied. Sugar, huh? Let me guess. Judging by what I know so far, it's because you're so sweet, Terrell said. Mindy smiled as she said no. You got the sweet part right, but it's actually because I taste that way. As the waiter brought their drinks, Terrell thought to himself that the drink couldn't have come at a better time. So, Terrell, do you have any kids? None, he replied. So what's a handsome, successful man with no kids doing single, she asked. Well, I'm actually not single, Terrell said. Mandy gave him a look of suspicion as she said, but your profile said that you were. Well, I know I need to update that, Terrell said, lying. He wasn't thinking about updating it. So you've got a girlfriend, she asked. No, I'm actually married. He then followed with another question. Is that a problem? Not at all, Mandy replied, because I have a boyfriend, she added as she took a sip of her drink. So what are you online looking for, Terrell then asked her. Well, seeing how we both are involved with somebody, I would say that I'm looking for the same thing that you are. Mandy said as she stared at Terrell provocatively. The waiter then set their food down on the table. Terrell was drawn to her even more as he saw her bow her head to say grace. As the two talked for what seemed like hours, they saw just how much their personalities complemented one another. Laughing and joking, making fun of others who happened to walk by, Terrell knew that there was something special about this woman. The longer that he sat with her, the more evident it became exactly what that something special was. Why don't you come watch me dance tonight, Mandy asked him. Where at, he asked. At Eve's Apple on West Walnut Street, she then told him. I'd love to come, so I'll see you there. After having enjoyed their meal, the two got ready to part ways. They exited the building, they gave each other a hug as they said their goodbyes. As Terrell made it home, he dreaded the thought of having to spend time with Camille. As he parked in the garage, he was relieved that her car was not there. He proceeded to walk in the house, heading straight to his bedroom. He turned to the television as he laid in the bed. Within minutes, he had fallen asleep. Once Terrell woke up, he looked at his watch. He felt refreshed because he had slept for five hours. It was not a nightfall, and Camille was still not at home. Let me call to make sure she's okay, he thought. He picked up the phone to dial her number. Hello? Okay, just making sure that you're okay because I haven't heard from you, Terrell said. I'm sorry I've been at Mom's house and I just got lost track of time, she said. But if you want me to come home now, I will, she added. Nah, that's okay. I was just checking on you. Tell Mom I said hello. Okay, Terrell, I love. But before she could get the last word out, Terrell had already hung up the phone. Terrell hopped in the shower and got himself ready. It took him a couple of hours because he took pride in his appearance. After he put on some cologne, he headed out the door to his destination for the night. Arriving at the club, Terrell felt out of place. If they knew who he was, the woman would be flocking to him. That thought didn't even bother him because on this night, he was only interested in seeing one person, Mandy. He sat down and ordered his favorite drink, a crown and coke. 
About 20 minutes after his arrival, Mandy noticed that he was there. As she walked to his table, Terrell almost didn't recognize her. The woman that he met earlier was covered. This one had artwork that graced all over her body. The one tattoo that caught his attention the most was that of a snake. His tail started from the front of her ankle and then wrapped around her leg and calf. It continued to spiral around her thigh and disappeared as it went into her G-string. The words poisonous were written in cursive underneath the piercing through her navel. Terrell wondered if that word described the snake whose head disappeared into her G-string or did it describe Mandy herself? Damn, Mandy, Terrell said. What, she asked. You look good, girl. Why, thank you, she said, smiling. You don't look bad yourself, she added. So when do you go on stage, he then asked. You already missed me, she said. I'm sorry, I really wanted to see you. Terrell said, sounding disappointed. Well, I've got something a little better, Mandy told him. She then took him by the hand and led him to a private area reserved for dancers. She sat him down on the couch as she began to sway to the music, staring at him provocatively as she took off her top. She then began rubbing her breast and licking her lips as she moved her hips to the beat. She slowly walked over to Terrell, taking his hand, allowing him to caress her breast. She then mounted him as he began to lick her nipples in a perfect circular motion. Mandy loved having her nipples licked. During sex this, sex, this would lead to her having an orgasm. She then bit her lip ever so gently. Mandy loved it, and she could tell that Terrell was enjoying the show. She made that assumption based on the hardness that she felt pressing against her. She began to grind her lower body while kissing him long and passionately. He wanted her, and judging by her wetness, she wanted him too. Mandy then crawled over his legs onto the other end of the couch. As she lied back, she took off her G-string and began to touch herself. Terrell scooted closer as he placed his face in the area where the snake's head disappeared. Her lips, not the ones that she kissed with, began to glisten as they were coated by his saliva. She began to squeeze her thighs around Terrell's head as he licked her clit slowly with his tongue. Even though what they were doing was against the club's rules, Mandy didn't care. She was loving it and so was he. She grabbed the back of his head and began to moan with pleasure, enjoying Terrell's technique. They had forgotten that they were in public, but were brought back to reality after a man and a dancer walked in. They had no choice but to stop, disappointed because they wanted to finish what they had started. Wow, Terrell, she said as they went back to their table. Mandy, still wet, looked at Terrell as if she wanted to give him the pussy right then and there. Do you want to go somewhere and finish this, she asked. Terrell, while looking at his watch, said, I wish I could, Mandy, but I have to get going. Mandy looked disappointed as she asked him, is it your wife? Terrell quickly responded by saying, hell no, I have a hearing in the morning. Oh, well, since you've met me at my workplace, can I see you at yours, she asked. Why, sure, he said. You know where the courthouse is at? Come on now, I'm a stripper, and I have friends from the hood. So what do you think? Okay, Terrell said, it's going to be in courtroom four at 830. See you there, Mandy. Mandy said, okay. Terrell said goodbye as he placed his arms around her, proceeding to give her a kiss goodnight. Terrell couldn't stop thinking about Mandy on the way home. Upon making it home, he walked in only to find Camille asleep on the couch. Not wanting to wake her up, he headed upstairs to get him a few hours of sleep. As he crept up the stairs, Camille looked at him and asked, was she good? Terrell, surprised by her question, began to think that he was caught. What are you talking about? He questioned. Whoever you were sleeping with, was she good? Camille, you're crazy. I'm not stupid, Terrell. 
look, Camille, I went out for drinks with some associates at the Goodman firm. Now, can I please go to bed? Terrell didn't wait for a response as he walked up the steps. In the courtroom, Terrell was sharply dressed as he sat down next to his client. As he looked in the audience, Mandy came walking through the door. The judge began to speak. We are here for the suppression hearing in the state versus Juan Beasley. Mr. Beasley is represented by counsel and faces one count of murder. Are both parties ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor, replied Terrell and the prosecutor in unison. Mr. Mitchell, the judge said, motioning to, for Terrell to begin. I called to the stand Detective Scott Dixon, Terrell said. The detective walked to the stand. On the date of November 17, 2017, you conducted a search based off of a warrant that was issued by Judge Baker, correct? Yes, the detective replied. During the search, detective, what did you find? A 45 caliber handgun, said the detective. Is that the same gun that was said to have been used in the murder that my client is accused of? Yes, the detective responded. Are you aware, detective, that you didn't sign the probable cause affidavit to obtain the warrant? If I didn't, I must have forgot, the detective said. But you do know, to get a warrant, the affidavit must be sworn to and signed, right, detective? The prosecutor interrupted. Your Honor, the detective was acting in good faith based off of a tip that the gun was in the home. Then Terrell chimed in. But good faith doesn't trump the Constitution. And according to the Constitution, a warrant can't be issued without probable cause. And if the affidavit is not sworn to and signed, then there is no probable cause which in turn makes the warrant and anything found during the search illegal. This evidence must be thrown out. Your Honor, without a gun, I don't have a case, the prosecutor said. Exactly, Terrell replied. The judge then stated, Based on the law, the defense's motion to suppress is granted. Thank you, Judge, Terrell said. Then Terrell shook the hand of his client as the client told him thank you. Terrell then proceeded to walk out with Mandy. So what just happened in there, asked Mandy. In a nutshell, his case won't go to trial, he replied. Let me get this straight, Terrell. He was charged with murder, but because the detective didn't sign a piece of paper, the whole case will be dismissed? Yes, Mandy. Even if he really committed the murder, he'll get away with it, she asked. Yes, responded Terrell. How does that make you feel, Terrell? I don't get paid to feel, Mandy, he replied. As they continued to walk, Camille approached. Hi, Terrell, she said while looking Mandy up and down in jealousy. Terrell, being caught off guard, thought quick as he handed Mandy the folders that he had in his hand. Please tell Tisha to proofread these motions before she files them, Terrell said. Okay, Mr. Mitchell, Mandy replied while picking up on his deception. She then walked away. Camille, while looking at her husband, asked, is she a new attorney? Nah, just an intern, Terrell replied. Camille then stated, I was in the area and knew that you were in court and just wanted to know if you'd like to go to lunch with me. Sure, he said. As the two sit at the table, they ordered a light lunch. Camille began to inquire about the hearing. So how did it go, she asked. Another victory, Terrell said. Good, hon. While they, while they continued to talk, a woman at another table looked over at Terrell and began whispering to a woman who was sitting right across from her. Camille couldn't help but notice the woman staring in their direction, looking at her husband as she smiled. Do you know her, Camille asked her husband. Who, he asked. That girl over there staring, that's who, Terrell. Terrell took a real hard look and recognized that it was the stripper that walked in on him and Mandy's makeout session at the club. No, he replied. 
as Camille walked over to the woman's table to confront her. Excuse me, is there a problem, she asked the woman. I'm sorry, I just thought I recognized you from somewhere. I guess I was mistaken. You just look familiar. Okay, just wanted to come and make sure, Camille then walked back to her table. Still a little ghetto, I see, Terrell said. What did you think, because I got money now, that I forgot where I came from? Terrell smiled, but in the back of his mind, he was happy the woman didn't expose him. As the two finished their lunch, Camille stated that she still had a few more errands to run. Terrell received the news with gladness, feeling relieved that their lunch was about to end. I just wanted to see you, Terrell. Thank you for having lunch with me. Okay, Camille. Camille leaned over and kissed him as she left. Once Terrell saw that his wife was out of sight, he called Mandy. Hello, he said as she answered. Hey, Terrell, you still with the missus? No, I want to meet. I want you to meet me at my office in about an hour. I'll text you the address. Okay, she responded. Terrell drove to the floors before he headed to his office. He picked out a bouquet of assorted colored roses and signed the card that came with it. As he reached his practice, he waved at Tisha as he walked past her. Terrell headed to his office. Tisha walked in and told him that she had an appointment that she had to be at. But before Terrell could tell her okay, the bell rang. He and Tisha both walked towards the lobby. Terrell looked at Mandy and said, hello, Miss Burks. Tisha looked at Terrell, then Mandy and said with a smirk, another client, huh? She then headed out the door. And what was that supposed to mean, Mandy asked. I haven't the slightest idea, Terrell said. Terrell closed the blinds and locked the door and led Mandy back to his office. Upon entering the office, Terrell handed Mandy the flowers that he got her. Thank you, Terrell, she said as she gave him a hug. As Mandy looked around his office, the first thing that she noticed was the picture on his desk. You have a beautiful wife. Why aren't you trying to make it work? We haven't been in love with each other in years. Our marriage has gotten stale and boring, Terrell responded. So why not get a divorce then, she asked. Mandy, I didn't get where I am financially from just being a good attorney. I took chances in investing in several businesses which proved to be successful. But the money that I invested was all Camille's. This was at a time when I was broke and still going through law school. Camille had received a large settlement from an accident. She gave me the money under one condition, and that one condition was, if I ever was to leave her, that she would get 75% of what I made from the investments. So she would get all of that plus anything that she would be awarded in a divorce settlement. Oh, I see, she said. So Mandy, tell me, why haven't you left your boyfriend? Because Michael doesn't have anybody but me. He never knew his father and his mother died of cancer. So if I left him, he'd be lost. Terrell then interrupted, you're making excuses, Mandy. So are you, Terrell, she rebutted. So where's my kiss, asked Terrell. Come and get it, she replied. He then grabbed her by the waist as he slowly kissed her lips. Mandy then stopped him and asked, is there a restroom in here? Yes, down the hall on the right. She then headed that way. Terrell sat down in his chair and anxiously awaited for her to come back. Mandy walked back, wearing nothing but a black lace matching bra and panties set. She also had her phone in her hand. I figured that I would play this song for you seeing how we met on the computer. I figured that this was only fitting. The song Computer Love by Zapp and Roger began playing as she hit the playlist on her phone. She then began to make her way towards Terrell as she stripped. Mandy stepped on the chair that was in front of his desk and in the next motion she stepped on the desk. Terrell glanced at the picture at his wife that was by where Mandy was standing. Any emotions of guilt that he may have felt for a second was pushed aside by the feelings of lust and anticipation. 
Mandy began swaying her hips, rocking to the beat. She then kicked over the picture of Camille. Terrell began to take off his pants. Mandy then stepped down from his desk and walked to Terrell. Once she had gotten closer, she then turned around backwards and straddled him. She started sliding her pussy up and down the length of his shaft. She then began squeezing her pussy muscles to clenching it around his cock. Terrell began to bite her ear as he whispered her name, Sugar. Mandy smiled at the pleasure of hearing him call her name. Terrell stood up and laid her upper body across his desk as he bent her over. He then began to take deep and slow strokes. Mandy raised her ass even higher. Give it to me, she replied. Terrell pounded even harder as he watched her ass shake with each thrust that he gave her. Tisha had almost made it home but quickly drove back to the office upon realizing that she left her purse. As she unlocked the door, the music that was playing was that a song which she had heard, hadn't heard in a while. Wanting to say something to Terrell, applied in his choice of music, she made her way to the back office. She made it no further than to the door as her eyes gazed upon Mandy, gripping hold of the desk moaning. As Mandy opened up her eyes, she saw that they were not alone, but she made no attempt to inform Terrell. She looked into Tisha's eyes and slowly began to move her fingers toward her clit. She liked being watched and made no effort to hide the fact that it turned her on. Tisha, surprised at what she witnessed, excused herself from watching. Mandy began to play with herself even more. Her moans became louder as her breaths became heavier, gripping the desk even tighter as she began to climax. Terrell couldn't contain himself either. He began pounding even wilder, giving off the sign that he was about to come. Mandy smiled as she felt him shoot his climax inside of her. Mandy's boyfriend entered the home clutching hold of a fifth of vodka in his left hand. It had been a while since he heard from Mandy, so he decided to know her whereabouts. Normally, he kept tabs on his girlfriend, knowing her every move. Usually, it was due to his insecurities, but today his intuition led him to become suspicious. He began texting Mandy, but after several minutes, he received no response. Growing more angrier by the second, Mike was prompted to call her phone. After only receiving her voicemail, each of the four times that he called, Mike's only option was to wait and just allow the liquor to fuel his frustration and anger. Damn, Mandy. She said while turning her back to look at Terrell. Terrell was speechless as he tried to catch his breath. Mandy then kissed him as she headed back to the bathroom. When she came back, Terrell was laid out on the carpet naked and exhausted. Mandy smiled as she told Terrell, I'll see you later. Gone so soon, Terrell asked. Yeah, I have to get going, she said while leaning over to kiss him. Oh, and by the way, your paralegal came in and saw us. Why didn't you say something, Terrell asked. I wasn't about to stop on account of her, she said, smiling as she left his sight. As Terrell arrived at his home, his wife met him in the living room. Terrell, what's wrong with us, she asked him. We don't spend time together anymore. We've only had sex in the last four, once in the last four months. We hardly even talk. We're talking now, aren't we? Terrell asked sarcastically. You're just so cold, Camille responded. Look, Camille, if that's all, I'm about to take a shower. I came by your office, Terrell. I seen your car, but the door to your office was locked. Where were you? I took a walk, Terrell said. Then I called your phone twice, but you didn't answer. I accidentally left my phone in the office. You have an answer for everything, don't you, Terrell? Maybe you should stop asking me so many damn questions, he responded as he started walking to up the stairs. Camille knew that she was losing the man that she loved because she was the only one fighting for their marriage, making it a lopsided battle. Seeing with her own eyes that her husband had long since retreated, 
leaving her outnumbered to face the battle alone. After Terrell's shower, he walked down the stairs. Camille had fallen asleep watching a video of their wedding. Guilt began to set in as he walked back up the steps. He then called Mandy. Mandy, still driving, picked up her phone. Hello? Hi, Mandy, I need to talk to you. Okay, Terrell, what's wrong? She said while sensing a problem by the tone of his voice. I'm feeling bad for how I'm treating my wife. Okay, so what about us, she asked. I don't know, he responded. So after we have sex, you start to feel bad, huh? How convenient, Mandy said. Here, I'll make it easy for you, Terrell. Let's call this goodbye. As Mandy hung up the phone, Camille was standing in the door watching him. Who was that, Terrell? It was a client, he said. Don't lie to me, who was it? I said a client, let me see your phone. For what, Camille? Let me see it. Terrell gave Camille the phone as she began to call the last number that was on there. Hello, Camille said as Mandy answered. Who is this and where do you know my husband from? Camille paused listening to Mandy's response. Oh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for calling, Camille stated as she hung up. Terrell looked at his wife and asked, are you satisfied now? I'm sorry, Terrell. Terrell didn't respond as he headed to the bathroom. As he came out, Camille was already back asleep in their bed. Terrell lay down but couldn't stop thinking about Mandy. As Mandy walked in her house, her boyfriend was sitting in the living room. Where you been, Mandy, he asked. Where'd you get the flowers from? I bought these for Mama, she replied. He then snatched the flowers and read the card. Without hesitation, he grabbed her by her hair. So you gonna lie to me, he asked. Please, Mike, don't, she pleaded. He then smacked her so hard that she fell down to the floor. He then got on top of her and tried to kiss her. Mandy wanted no parts of this and tried to wrestle him off of her. Her fighting only upset him even more as he hit her once again. Mandy no longer resisted. She just laid still as he snatched her pants off. Mandy lied there motionless, praying that the ordeal would be quick. The liquor that her boyfriend indulged in caused him to maintain his erection and stamina for hours. Mike finally finished, but Mandy refused to move a muscle until he vacated the premises. Once she heard the sound of the door closing behind him, it was a sound of relief as well as an answered prayer. All night, Terrell couldn't stop thinking about Mandy. As soon as he made it to his office, he began calling. Mandy was at home staring in the mirror at her face. Hues of black stains decorated her cheek from the mascara blended with her tears. Rubbing her fingers across her face, she heard her phone ringing in the distance. Mandy was reluctant to answer it. Hello, Mandy said as she answered in a soft-spoken voice. Mandy, can I please see you? I don't know if you want to see me like this, Terrell. I couldn't stop thinking about you, Mandy. Okay, Terrell, let me get myself together. Terrell sat down and waited for her arrival. Tisha walked in Terrell's office to hand up some paperwork to go over. Tisha, about yesterday, Terrell said in an attempt to explain his actions. Look, Terrell, you don't have to explain to me. What you do in this office, your actions, that's your business. She then proceeded to lay the papers down on his desk as she turned around and headed back toward the lobby. About 30 minutes later, Mandy walked in with a swollen jaw and a black eye. Tisha looked at her and said, are you okay? By that time, Terrell made it to the lobby. Tisha, can you please get some ice and a rag, Terrell said, looking at Mandy's face growing upset. As Tisha made it back with the ice, he asked her could she give them and Mandy a, a moment. He then took Mandy back to his office. Leave him, Mandy. I can't. He'll just find me. He always does. You can't keep living like this, said Terrell. And how am I supposed to live, Terrell? Are you going to be with me? Are you going to leave your wife? I didn't think so. My life is so fucked up. The man that I'm falling for, I can't be with. Terrell then interjected with some news of his own. 
I'm falling for you too, Mandy. This last comment that both of them made struck a chord with Terrell. He figured now was a better time than any to end his marriage with Camille. Do me a favor, Mandy. Wait right here and I'll be right back. Terrell left and got in his car, speeding as he weaved through traffic as he rushed home. Mandy looked at the plaques that surrounded the walls of Terrell's office. Pictures of celebrities that he met hung right alongside of his accolades. She smiled as she remembered what took place in the office just the day before, chuckling as she noticed the picture of his wife still lying in the very same spot where she kicked it. Tisha peeked her head in the doorway. Are you okay? I'm feeling a little better, thanks for asking. Tisha, uh, Tisha then said, I brought you these, handed Mandy some aspirin along with a cup of water. Thank you, Mandy replied. No problem, if you need anything else, just holler. Mandy began to wonder did Tisha enjoy the show that she gave her, but she quickly brushed that thought out of her mind as she took the pills to ease her pain. As Terrell entered the door, Camille was in the kitchen cooking. Camille, we need to talk. Okay, she said. I think it's time we get a divorce, he then stated. It's another woman, isn't it, she asked. Camille, let's be real. We've been sharing the same house, but this house hasn't been a home in years. Terrell, we can fix this. I'm sorry, Camille. I just don't want this empty shell of a marriage any longer. And I don't care about the money anymore. Money? Did you say money? Is that why you've been holding on to me for money? You cold-hearted son of a bitch, she said as she smacked him. I deserve that, he said as he walked out of the house. He then called Mandy as he was driving. Yes, Terrell, Mandy said as she picked up the phone. I just ended it, he said. Ended what, Terrell? I ended it with Camille. So what are you saying, she asked. I want to be with you, Mandy. I want to go home. I want you to go home and pack some clothes. We'll get a hotel for the night, and then I'll handle everything else in the next few days. Okay, Terrell. Trust me, Mandy, it's going to be okay. Terrell, when you get to the hotel, text me the room number so I don't forget. Okay, Terrell replied. Mandy left the office and headed home. Terrell already had the perfect hotel in mind. He had been there numerous of times with his computer loves that he met on dating sites. The receptionist recognized him as soon as he walked in. There was a tad bit of curiosity as to which girl would be his company for the night. How are you today, Mr. Mitchell, the young lady asked. Terrell, surprised that she knew his name, replied by saying that he was doing well. Using her photographic memory, she already knew what kind of room that is what was his preference. As he told her what he wanted, she smiled and seeing that she was correct. Terrell texted Mandy the room number after receiving his key. Mandy placed some of her clothes in a duffel bag. As she was, walk as she was walking through the living room, her phone dropped on the floor. Terrell relaxed on the bed, feeling a sense of relief that he no longer had to pretend. Mandy sped as she took the highway to the hotel. As she pulled into the lot, she smiled, knowing that her life was about to change. As she searched for the room, she found it. She then knocked it as Terrell let her in. As she walked in, she hugged him as he kissed the crown of her head. The two laid down. Mandy placed her head on his chest as he wrapped his arms around her. She never felt so free. Mandy's boyfriend walked in her house. As he walked in the living room, he noticed her phone was on the floor. He began to look through it. As he saw the last message that was sent, he was filled with rage. Mandy continued to sleep as Terrell just was waking up. He continued, she could, he continued to lay there thinking about the possibilities of a new life. Mandy feeling Terrell move caused her to wake up from her slumber. She slowly led her hand down the inside of his boxers. She began to grip him gently 
stroking him with a steady slow motion. Then she proceeded to lower herself so that her mouth could take place the place of her hand. Terrell started to close his eyes, but was startled by a loud thump at the door. The noise caused Mandy to stop what she was doing as she looked at Terrell. Another loud thump, but this time the door came flying open. There stood Mike with the gun clutched in his hand and rage in his eyes. What the hell, Mike said. Baby, no, Mandy cried as he walked in. Terrell didn't know what to do. Is this what the hell you been doing, Mike asked. Mike then looked at Terrell real hard. And with my attorney, he shouted. Terrell took a long look at Mike and started to remember the client that he represented several days ago. The client's victim didn't show up to the hearing. Was Mandy the victim that his client was accused of beating up, who never showed up to testify against him? He was sure that she was. It's now making sense. Mike, I didn't know that he was your girl. I didn't know she was your girl, Terrell said. Yes, you did, Mandy said. Terrell looked confused. She's lying, Terrell stated. Mandy then looked at Terrell. You said you didn't care and that you would protect me. Mike, he said if I didn't stop fucking him, he was going to make sure that you never got out of jail. You little bitch, Terrell said as he reached to grab Mandy's neck. Mike then shot Terrell. Terrell laid there lifeless as Mandy got up from the bed. Baby, please don't, Mandy begged. Mike then smacked her, causing her to fall to the floor. As Mike walked closer, he placed a gun to the back of Mandy's head. Mandy then turned around and shot her boyfriend three times in the chest. No one knew that Mandy had a gun in her duffel bag that she had placed underneath the bed. Being smacked to the floor, placed her within arm's reach of that gun. The news story was on every channel. Each time Camille saw it, it just added more hurt. Camille felt that she needed a new life, so she moved out of state. Two months later, Camille goes to answer her door after she hears a knock. As she opened it, there stood Mandy. The two walked into the kitchen and sat down in chairs. Did they arrest you, Camille asked. Nah, they just questioned me. After I told them what happened, they said it was self-defense, she responded. See, I told you, Camille said. I didn't practice law for nothing. The plan worked exactly like I said it would. I knew that after Terrell sent that message on that site, he wouldn't be able to resist your sexy ass. <laughs> but your little stripper friend almost set me out. Little bitch should have stopped being nosy. And I knew that if I left my phone at home, Mike's nosy ass would go through it, Mandy replied. But you know what's crazy? Terrell used to be Mike's lawyer, so I played that to my advantage. And looks like you're going to have that baby from Terrell after all. I'm two months pregnant. Camille began smiling at the news. So, Mandy, now that you're going to be rich, are you going to stop dancing? You know you like my dancing. I remember the first night you came to the club, Camille. You couldn't keep your hands off of me. Mandy then started to walk behind Camille, rubbing her hands on her breast while kissing her neck. All of those private dances that I gave you at the hotel and the sex afterwards. Now, do you really want me to stop dancing? Well, just the club, baby. But you can dance for me anytime, Camille replied. <laughs> and that's another Unlikely Story production. Yup. Stephen Lyles took his final sip of whiskey that had been lingering in his glass for about an hour. 
He dreaded going home, but the bar was about to close. How could he tell his family that he had just lost his job? They were already two months behind on their mortgage. As he glanced up at the television, they were discussing the new law that had just been passed earlier that day. He tried to listen, but his efforts were cut short by a guy who changed the channel to something more provocative. No longer wanting to prolong the inevitable, Stephen decided that it was time to go home and face the music. The phone rang, but he couldn't bring himself to answer it. This was the fourth time that his wife had called him. He knew that she was beginning to worry. The overwhelming feeling of shame distorted his better judgment on answering the phone. The ride home was a lonely one. At three o'clock in the morning, his car was the only vehicle that occupied the road. He had to make one more stop. He knew that he had to do something about the situation. He damn sure wasn't going to allow his family to go without. After checking his rear view, making sure that there wasn't any squad cars within his vicinity, he made a U-turn. He decided to take the back streets to his destination because he thought that it would be quicker. The other reason was him not wanting to draw any attention by the swerving that he was doing because of the alcohol he had consumed. He turned down the radio. The Kenny G song that was playing was interrupting his train of thought. Once he made it to the house, he parked his car in the driveway. He waited in his car in an attempt to build up his courage. He took a deep breath as he prepared to exit out of his vehicle. After an hour had elapsed, Stephen emerged from the house and jogged back to his car. The tires screeched as he drove off, a telltale sign that he was in a hurry to get back to the comfort of his own home. Devin Harris strutted in the courtroom with the air of confidence. Wearing his handcuffs as a badge of honor, he smirked at the family that he made a victim of his sadistic fetishes. Their tears brought a sense of satisfaction that seemed to stroke his twisted ego. Judge Heather Borges looked at him in disgust, not wanting to allow her personal feelings of hatred to dictate her dis discretion in sentencing. The judge finally gathered her composure. We're here for the matter for, of sentencing for Devon Harris, said the judge. He was convicted by jury for the crimes of count one murder, count two attempted murder, count three rape, and count four burglary. Defense, she said while looking at Devin's attorney. Devin's attorney approached the judge's bench. Your Honor, we would ask for some leniency in sentencing, said the attorney. It seems that Mr. Harris has been waiting trial. While in jail, he has obtained his GED. He has also participated in drug and alcohol programming in an effort to deal with the problems that he has, which led him to commit the crimes. The judge fought back the anger that she was feeling. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. Leniency? There was no way in hell, she thought to herself. The prosecutor then interjected, Your Honor, Mr. Harris brutally waked the victim's daughter and forced him to watch. He then shot her in cold blood. Then he turned around and shot her father who only by the grace of God lived to tell the story. The father who was looking on in the courtroom had to excuse himself. It was too much for him to bear having to relive the ordeal that took place only one year ago. Hearing the prosecutor's reenactment only reopened the fresh wounds that had recently started to heal. Your Honor, the state is asking that Devin Harris receive the minimum. The judge then gave the prosecutor a look of surprise. Excuse me, the judge replied. Did you just recommend the minimum? You do realize that the minimum was only 20 years. With the violent record that he has, are you sure that is what you're requesting? Devin cracked a smirk. He had already prepared to spend the rest of his life in prison. By him only being 20 years of age, 
what the prosecutor was recommending meant that he would only be incarcerated for 15 more years. Yes, the state is very aware of the sentencing guidelines, Your Honor. However, we would ask that he be given an alternative sentencing, according to the new sentencing statute. Devin's family, who were in the courtroom, began to have hope. Their idea and understanding of, of alternative sentencing consisted of house arrest or drug rehab. Judging by the look on Devin's face, he shared their opinion. The judge smiled as she looked at the defendant. Be it today that it is ordered that Devin Harris be sentenced to the Department of Corrections for 20 years, which means that with good behavior, Mr. Harris, you will be released in 15. This court further sentenced you to the alternative sentencing program to be effective immediately. As Devin was escorted out of the courtroom, his family waved at him. He blew them a kiss as the two sheriffs rushed him through a door that was located behind the juror's box. News reporters lined up in the hallway, wanting to get a word from the defendant as he was being led through the courtroom. Devin tried to shield his face from the view of the camera. After the sheriffs received a call on their radio, they led Devin through a door that led down to a flight of stairs. Devin tried to make small talk. I'm glad this is over. Now I can finally go to the joint and start this bid. The sheriffs didn't respond to his attempt to converse. You guys don't like talking, huh? The trio finally reached the basement. Devin was then led to the back of the sheriff's van that had been waiting on him. As he climbed in the back, he saw that there was already another inmate in the back. Well, at least I have someone to talk to on my way back to jail, he thought. There was very little room in the back of the van. This is going to be a long, uncomfortable ride, Devin thought. He had no other option but to sit close to the man who had came along for the trip. Hey, man, can you scoot over a little bit? Devin asked him. The sheriff closed the door, leaving Devin and the man completely alone in the darkness. Devin felt a damp cloth being pressed down against his nose and his mouth. He tried to squirm, but the man's grasp was too strong for Devin's small frame. Devin fought to break free, but his fight was short-lived as he started to lose consciousness. Devin woke up and tried to move. His, mo his moves were restricted by the restraints that bound him to the chair that he was in. He tried to focus his vision. Something about his surroundings looked familiar. The off-white paint that graced the wall started to jog his memory. The curtains which were color-coordinated with the furniture reminded him of his childhood. That was it. Devin realized where he was now wet. It was the very same house that he grew up in. It was his mother's house. Devin was confused as to why he was there instead of the county jail. He turned his head to survey the area. Out of the corner of his eye, he noticed the silhouette of a man sitting at the bottom of the steps that led to the upstairs bedroom. Devin tried to speak, but his words were muffled by the gag that had been placed in his mouth. He stopped trying as he heard the keys being placed inside of a door. The man on the steps stood up. Devin's mother walked in only to be greeted by a gun being waved in her face. The man then struck her on the side of her head. The force of the blow caused her to stumble down to her knees. The man began to kick her as she tried to make her way back to her feet. Devin tried to come to her aid, but his cuffs and shackles limited his range of movement down to a minimal. He watched in horror as his mother looked at him with fear in her eyes. Please, she cried as the assailant grabbed her by the hair. Placing the gun to the back of her head, the man walked her to the edge of the couch. He then forced her to bend over, lying her upper body across the arm of the sofa. The man looked over at Devin as he lifted up his mother's dress. He seemed to get enjoyment out of forcing Devin to watch. The man then raped Devin's mother in front of him. The tears streamed down Devin's chin as he helplessly watched what was taking place. Devin closed his eyes, not wanting to look any further. 
Though his eyes had stopped seeing his mother's pain, he couldn't prevent his ears from hearing it as she cried. After several minutes, it sounded as though it was over. Devin no longer heard the man's groans or the slapping of the flesh hitting against his mother. Devin opened up his eyes. The man then raised the gun to his mother's head and pulled the trigger. Devin did cried even harder after seeing the same brutal crime that he committed being perpetuated on someone whom he loved. The prosecutor approached the reporter who had been waiting outside of the courtroom. The lights almost blinded, the prosecutor forcing him to squint his eyes. The reporter was a young blonde named Stacy Mitchell. She took the prosecutor's hand as she, he introduced himself. Dan Graves, deputy prosecutor. Nice to meet you, Mr. Graves. My name is Stacy. Dan tried to keep his eyes focused on hers as he attempted to look at her cleavage that was showing due to her low-cut blouse. She began to prep the prosecutor. Mr. Graves, I'll be asking you a few questions. The cabberman then cued the reporter. All right, Stacy, we're on in five, four, three, two, one, he said. This is Stacy Mitchell with Channel 7 News. I'm standing here with Deputy Prosecutor Dan Graves. Mr. Graves, there seems to be a lot of questions in regards to the new sentencing practices this state has adopted. Could you please explain to the public what it all entails? Sure, Stacy. What we have devised is what we believe will be an effective method either to eradicate or drastically reduce the amount of violent crimes that are committed. What it entails is that those who are convicted will be sentenced to having to watch firsthand those same very violent crimes being committed against their loved ones. We believe that this will detour criminals from perpetuating these crimes in the future, knowing that their friends and family will be subjected to the very same. The reporter couldn't believe her ears. She couldn't believe that the prosecutor had just said all of this with a straight face. He couldn't possibly be serious was the first thought that entered her mind. But wouldn't that mean more crimes being committed against innocent victims, she asked the prosecutor. We believe that the ends will justify the means. Sometimes there has to be some collateral damage for the sake of the greater good, the prosecutor responded. So what would you say to those who feel that you are no better than the criminals that you are prosecuting, Mr. Graves? I would ask them if they would still feel the same way if there was their children who were murdered. Thank you for your time, Mr. Graves. After cutting the camera off, Stacy expressed her true feelings. This is crazy. They can't possibly get away with this. Stephen Lyles was a heavy sleeper. His snoring could be heard echoing through the Victorian-style home. His wife, Stacy, tried to turn him on to his, his side, but because of the 100-pound difference between the two of them, it made bulging him, budging him a different difficult task for her petite body. Getting back to sleep was going to be next to impossible due to the noise that she would have to fight through. She decided to make use of her time by going to check on their seven-year-old son. As she stared at him, she was tempted to plant a kiss on his forehead. She hesitated, not wanting to wake him, but she quickly gave in to the temptation. She was then startled by a loud boom coming from the front room. Steve's snoring failed in comparison to the noise level that came from the sound at the front door. Then there was another boom, but this one was followed by footsteps and the sound of several officers shouting at the top of their lungs. Police! Everybody get down! Stacy rose up to see what all the commotion was about. As she headed out of the room, she was met by an officer tightly clutching hold of an assault rifle. She lost her breath as she stared down the barrel of the weapon, which was now being pointed at eye level. On the ground, he shouted. As she lowered herself down to her knees, she heard another officer yell, he's in here. After giving the shout, several officers followed the sound of his voice. Hands up, they yelled while pointing their firearms in the direction of Steve and Stacy's bedroom. What's going on, Stacy cried. 
she was still visibly shaken for what was taking place. The officer that was still in the room with her began to feel sorry for pointing his weapon in her face. He helped her get up from the floor and allowed her to sit on the bed with her son. Miss Lyles, he said in a calming voice, your husband is wanted for the murder of a family that happened about a month ago. As Stacy looked out the door, the police were walking her husband down the hallway in cuffs. A wide variety of emotions fought for Stacy to feel them. Anger, betrayal, fear, and confusion. Is this why Stephen didn't answer his phone when she had tried to reach him? Is this where all of the money that he had all of a sudden came from? There were so many questions that she had, but Stacy would have to wait for the answers. Sean Daniels was waiting for his attorney to enter the room. Eager to hear some good news, he became nervous and fidgety as he waited. The door swung open. Good, after, good afternoon, Mr. Daniels. What's going on, Mitch, Sean asked. Well, the state came with the offer that they had spoke to you with you about a month ago. You don't have to do any more jail time. They credited you with the eight months that you already been locked up for, and they're giving you time served. You'll be pleading guilty to three counts of dealing narcotics, and they're dismissing the possession charges. You've already agreed to participate in the alternative sentencing program. You will watch a video that will fill you in on all the details after I leave. All I need for you to do is to sign right here and you will be a free man. Sean quickly signed the plea bargain after the attorney slid it over to him. He looked forward to getting back home to his wife. She had been there for him for support the whole time that he had been locked up, but for some reason, he hadn't heard from her in over a month. Best of luck to you, Mr. Daniels, the attorney said after he left the room. After the door closed, the television was, that was mounted on the wall came on. It was a recording that had the date of July 31st, 2018. There was something familiar about that date. Sean looked through his paperwork and noticed that it was the exact date that he signed the papers to participate in the program. It was just over a month ago. Sean focused his eyes back on the recording. There was a woman with tears in her eyes whose wrists were strapped to the head of board of a bed. Sean's heart dropped when he figured out exactly who the woman was. It was his wife. What the hell is going on, he yelled. He got up from the chair, racing to the door to open it. The door was locked. He banged on it repeatedly. Open up this damn door! His shouts of aggression fell on deaf ears, so he had no other choice but to turn around and resume watching the video. A man who sat next to his wife began tracing the vein along her arm with his finger. While he was tracing her vein, another man stood next to him, melting down heroin that was in a spoon with a lighter. After putting the drugs in a syringe, he then gave it to the man who was sitting next to Sean's wife. He then punctured her skin with a needle while slowly injecting the drugs into her vein. The recording went off. Sean with tears now in his eyes got up to try the door again. He stopped mid-stride when he heard the recording come back on. The date that flashed across the bottom showed that this video had been made just a couple of days ago. The video was that of a living room. There was a banging at the front door. As the door opened up, it was Sean's wife. Her hair was disheveled and looked like she hadn't bathed in weeks. I need something. I'm sick. Help me out, she cried to the man. Shelly, you still owe me from the last time, said the man while attempting to close the door in her face. In desperation, Shelly used her body to stop the door from closing. Please, I'll do anything, she replied. Come on in and close the door, he told her. She then closed the door behind her as she walked in. Now come here, he said while he unzipped his pants. Sean's wife then got on her knees and planted her face into the man's crotch. As the man grabbed the back of her head with his right hand, the video turned off. The door to the room that Sean was sitting in opened up. Sean sat there frozen, just staring in pain at the blank television screen. 
For years, he made his living by selling drugs, breaking up families, and causing women to prostitute their bodies for a measly $20 fix. There he sat. He had just watched the woman that he loved, showing him what countless other men with addicted spouses have gone through. Stephen had been taken to the precinct for questioning. Nervousness set in. The only dealings that he had with the police in the past were a few minor traffic tickets. The room that he was in had a slight chill to it. Luckily, he had been sleeping in his thermals when the police came to his house. A chubby detective who reeked of cheap cigars entered into the room. Stephen, before I give you the opportunity to speak, I have to advise you of your rights. The detective then began reading the Miranda rights that were printed on a piece of paper. After asking Stephen did he understand those rights, he told him to sign the bottom of the paper if he agreed to waive those rights and speak with the detective. I have nothing to hide, said Stephen, as he put his signature on the line that was in bold print. You do know Marcus Fieldman, don't you, Mr. Lyles? Yeah, we're good friends, replied Stephen. So when was the last time that you saw Marcus? It was about a month ago, October 15th. I know the date because that was the same day that I lost my job. That was the same day the murder occurred, thought the detective. So did you go to his house? Yeah, it was around 3.30 in the morning. I talked to him for about an hour. He loaned me $7,000 to help me get out of debt. You sure you mean loaned and not robbed him of it? Asked the detective. Hold on, robbed him? Stephen asked, surprised at the accusation. Is that why you killed him? But why his wife? Why the kid? They were asleep, Stephen. You didn't have to kill them. Are you serious? You were seen running from his home, speeding off in a hurry that night, Stephen. Because I wanted to rush home and share with my wife the news about getting out of debt. Steve, if you're going to keep playing the innocent role, then this conversation is over and I can't help you. Help me? Help me what? Help you by saving, saying that you cooperated with us to help you get a more lenient sentence. Sentence? Sentence for what? I didn't do anything. I wouldn't call a triple homicide and robbery nothing. You've got to be kidding me. This isn't a laughing matter, Stephen. A family is dead all because you got behind on your bills. Was it because of crack, Stephen? Is that why you lost your job? Stephen shut down immediately after hearing the detective's last few words. The detective didn't just didn't know just how true those words that he spoke actually were. Stephen was fighting with a crack addiction. Hearing the detective make a mention of it brought back all of his feelings of guilt and shame that he had finally broken free from. See you in the courtroom, the detective said as he left the room. Dan Graves sat alongside his wife at the table waiting for his colleagues to join him. Judge Heather Borges walked in in accompanied by Congressman Ted Whitmore. Ted was instrumental in having the bill passed that initiated the new sentencing guidelines in the court system. Dan waved his hand to get their attention. The two walked over to join the couple. Hi, Dan. Sylvia, said the judge while extending out her hand to shake theirs. Looking good, Heather, Sylvia replied. The judge smiled at the compliment. Dan, you do remember Ted, asked the judge. Congressman Whitmore, nice to see you again, Dan replied. Would the two of you like anything to drink, Dan asked him. Patron, said the judge. Rum and Coke, said the congressman. Dan motioned for the waitress to come to their table. He then placed the order for their drinks. So Heather tells me that the program is off to a great start, Dan. I believe that it is, but we won't have the numbers until next month to know for certain. I believe that we'll see a significant decrease in the number of crimes that are being committed. But it's just the public. Don't worry about the public, the congressman interrupted. All great ideas are misunderstood in the beginning. Just give it time. Sylvia then chimed in. But what about the innocent families? Heather then spoke up. Fuck their families. 
Did they care about the families they hurt? Hell no. By that time, the waitress had made her way over to the table. Heather took her glass and quickly downed the tequila that had been filled to the rim. Let me get another, she said to the waitress. Sure thing, hun, replied the waitress. Hun? Mmm, I like the sounds of that, the judge said. What are you doing tonight, she asked the waitress. I don't know, I didn't have any plans, she replied. How would you like to make a few more tips tonight? She said while caressing the waitress's arm with her hand. Well, if you stayed after my shift is over, we can discuss this a little further. I'm looking forward to that, baby, replied Heather. The waitress then walked off as the judge continued to stare at her backside as she left. Heather, you do know that prostitution is illegal, asked the congressman. You're just jealous that she didn't ask, you didn't ask first, Ted. Well, I'll double what you're paying if I can watch, she replied. Then they spoke up. I'll bring the party favors if me and Sylvia can join. What kind of party are we talking about, Dan, asked the congressman. One with lots of snow, Ted. Do you have some on you? Because I think that I have to go to the powder my nose, literally. Sylvia then asked, what the hell makes us any different from the criminals you prosecute? Money, replied the judge. Not getting caught, said the prosecutor. The congressman then raised his glass. Here's to a fun night. I'll drink to that, said Sylvia. Stephen was housed in a block containing inmates who were all accused of the most heinous crimes. A lot of the faces he recognized from seeing them on the evening news throughout the year. With his glasses and nerdy demeanor, Stephen looked like a fish out of water being surrounded by hardened criminals. Stephen walked over the, to the phone to call his wife. Stacy was in, within arm's reach of her phone waiting for her husband to call. Her teary eyes were to blame for the empty box of Kleenex that sat at the table lying only inches away from her phone. As the phone rang, it displayed a number that was unfamiliar to Stacy. She quickly answered it, believing that it was her husband finally being able to call. Her assumption was correct. Stacy was not acquainted with the way that collect calls from the jail worked. She had to listen to the automated recording a couple times before she knew how to accept the call. Hello, she answered. Hi, Stacy, Stephen said, sounding relieved to finally hear the voice of his wife. What's going on? She tried to ask without getting choked up. Hun, I don't know. The only thing that I know is that I didn't do what they are saying. The money, Stephen, where did it come from? The staying out all night, what were you doing? Stacy, I will explain everything, just not over this phone. Everything that we say they're listening to. Just please believe me. I didn't kill anybody. Listen, this phone call is about to end. Tell DJ that I love him, and as I find out what's going on, I will keep you informed. I love you, Stacy. I love you too, Stephen. The phone then hung up. Stephen began to walk towards the day room. He noticed a long piece of paper centered in the middle of a wall located by the exercise station. He saw several of the inmates gathered around the paper, looking as though they were being consumed by worry. Stephen walked up so that he could see what it was that had gotten their attention. As he read the memo in its entirety, he was gripped by fear as he thought about the possibilities of what could happen to his family if he was convicted of the crimes that he was accused of. Judging from the brow line and the wrinkles, the man had to be in his late 50s who entered the courtroom. He stood about 5'7 in stature, and his weight was roughly 350 pounds. What little hair that he did have was completely silver and clashed badly with the tan-colored suit that he was wearing. His attorney stood amazed because the man was able to squeeze into the suit that looked about two sizes too small. Judge Heather Borges adjusted her designer frame glasses as she looked over the file that was in front of her. 
We're here for the matter of the state versus Douglas Garner. Mr. Garner is facing one count of child molestation and two counts of deviant conduct with a minor. Are the parties ready to proceed? The men's attorney stood up. Your Honor, the defense moves for a dismissal. The victims failed to show up to the scheduled deposition after being subpoenaed on several occasions. Also, I'm filing for a suppression of the statement that my client made to the detective. It seems that the confession was gained illegally. Illegally, asked the judge while looking at the prosecutor. Yes, Your Honor, continued the attorney. My client continued to invoke his right to remain silent until he spoke with his attorney. However, the detective continued his line of questioning, even though Mr. Garner invoked his constitutional rights. The judge then shifted her glasses and looked over to, at the prosecutor. State, what's your position, she asked. The state has no objection to either motion, Your Honor. The judge looked at the prosecutor with confusion. The court grants the defense's motion for dismissal, said the judge. Mr. Graves, would you please meet me in my chambers? The prosecutor knocked on the door, signifying to the judge that he was about to come into her office. You look like shit, Dan, she said as he entered. Because you kept me up all night, he responded. Hangover, she asked. No, I feel fine. Well, something must be wrong because that's not like you to not put up a fight. Oh, I put up a fight, all right. I fought to make sure that those subpoenas didn't reach the victims. I fought to persuade the detective to say that he got the confession illegally. So that was your doing? What the hell, Dan? My damn uncle just needs to make sure that he stops choosing his dates from the playground. That slob was your uncle? Unfortunately, yes. But fortunate for us, he's a very rich uncle. So you can expect a very large contribution to your campaign, Judge, or should I say Senator? Ooh, I like when you talk dirty to me, Dan. You know, Dan, I'm looking forward to seeing whether or not what we're doing is effective. Judge, hold on, Dan. Address me like you know me. We're not in the courtroom for Pete's sake, so stop being so damn formal. You don't call me judge when your cock is in my mouth, so don't do it now. I'm sorry, Heather. That's better, she said. I think that there's going to be a promotion in your future. You moving into politics, me being elected judge? What we are doing has never been done before. Can you imagine a city without crime? Wait, just let me stop you right there, said the judge. We have to allow a little crime, otherwise we won't have a job. Guess you're right, said the prosecutor. But don't worry, we'll just keep throwing the poor to the wolves and people like your rich diaper chasing uncle will give our quote unquote tax-free charitable donations. Well, Heather, let me get going. I have to look over some paperwork for the Lyles case tomorrow. Lyles doesn't ring a bell, replied the judge. The man that killed the family about three months ago. I think I do recall hearing about that, replied the judge. Does he have a family, she asked. I don't know, that's one of the things that I have to look into. The judge then rubbed her foot against the leg of the prosecutor. All of this power really turns me on, Dan. But you do know that we still have one more case to hear, don't you, Dan? Really? I didn't see it on the docket. It was an add-on, replied the judge. Her sentencing hearing was continued from a couple weeks ago. You really don't remember, do you? The prosecutor shook his head no. Her name is Morales, little Mexican girl. Set a house on fire for insurance purposes. Wound up killing a five-year-old and his father in the process. You really need to start checking your file more often, Dan. She's one of yours. So you're not prepared to argue, huh? Sure, Heather, the, states make no, the state makes no recommendation on sentencing. We leave it to the discretion of the court. It pleased the judge to hear that, to know the fate of this woman's family lied in her hands. In some twisted way, the judge felt that what they were doing was making a positive difference.
Tanya Morales sat at the table with her attorney. The judge walked in as the prosecutor came walking through the side door. All rise, said the bailiff. Defense, are you ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. My client would like to address the court. Tanya was barely able to talk because the remorse that she felt had gotten the best of her. The only thing that the court was able to make out was that she was sorry and asked the judge for mercy. The judge just looked at the paperwork on her desk, unmoved by Tanya's tears and cries for mercy. Miss Morales said the judge, you said a fire that killed a man and his son. Do you have any kids, Miss Morales? Yes, I have a son, Your Honor. So how would you feel if it was your son? Would you want the judge to have mercy on that person? But I didn't know that anybody was in the house. You didn't answer the question, Miss Morales. Would you want the judge to have mercy on that person who killed your son? The tears began to fall even harder as Tanya reluctantly told the judge no. But you know what, Miss Morales? I do believe that you're sorry, and I will take that factor into consideration. The judge then looked at the prosecutor. I'm sentencing you to the court's alternative program. You will be able to go home on probation. You will also have to attend classes, which the probation officer will explain to you more fully. Thank you, Your Honor. Good day, Mr. Morales. Ms. Morales. Tanya pulled up in front of her house. She was elated to be home after a year fighting her case in the county jail. Her son looked out of the upstairs window when he heard her car pull up. Mommy, he yelled. As Tanya prepared to step out of the car, she looked and saw the flames through a window that was located downstairs. She quickly tried to exit her car and make it to the front door. The flames began to travel upstairs. Tanya began screaming her boyfriend's name who seemed to have fallen asleep in the inside of the house. She could hear her son crying her name. Tanya tried to open the front door, but the handle was too hot. She then tried to break the window. There was nothing in sight for her to use, so she wrapped her jacket around the arm and started banging. It wasn't until the fifth attempt that the window finally shattered. She was immediately overwhelmed by the smoke that started escaping through the broken window. She had to step away in order to catch her breath. As she stood back, she could see her son still looking out of the upstairs window. The look that was in her eyes conveyed the fear that was in her heart. She watched as she started choking, as he started choking from inhaling the smoke that was consuming his room. Tanya began screaming, hoping that somebody would hear her cries for help. A neighbor ran across the street only to realize that it was too late. Stacy stood in shock as she looked at what was left of the house that Tanya once called her home. Her heart was filled with compassion as the coroner brought out the charred remains of Tanya's son and boyfriend. She had already prepped herself with the notion that this was going to be a difficult interview to get through. She hated this part of the job. She had already taken two shots of vodka to try to keep herself together. The last thing that she needed was to let her emotions get the best of her and start crying during the interview. She approached Tanya who was being consoled by several members of her family. As Tanya saw the reporter, she began speaking in Spanish to, to one of the people who was gathered around her. The woman approached Stacy to translate what Tanya had spoken. I'm sorry, said the woman. Tanya said that she won't be able to give the interview. It's just too hard for her. I understand, replied Stacy. Stacy continued to look on. This was the aftermath of the new law that had been passed. This was the part of the legislature and the courts didn't get to see. All that they see and care about are numbers. They don't see the pain from their yachts on half a million dollar and half a million dollar homes. As she thought about this, she began to drop a tear. So much for the vodka. All that it seemed to do was heighten her sensitivity. This was the opposite effect that she was hoping that it would have. Since she had already started drinking, she thought to herself, 
a couple of more shots couldn't hurt. Dan was still in his office going over the various paperwork that his paralegal had printed off. He had gotten bored reading the specifics on the case involving Stephen Lyles. There was plenty of time to get familiar with details such as evidence, testimony, and trial strategy. What Dan was more concerned with was whether or not Stephen had a family. He knew just where to find out. Dan proceeded to check out Stephen's Facebook profile to find out the information that he needed. Let's see, he said, Stephen Malyles, married to his wife for eight years. They have a seven-year-old son named DJ. Perfect, he thought. The victim was also married and had a son. All killed the same fatal night in question. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is what the Bible says. Dan said to nobody but himself. His phone in the office didn't ring. Hello? Mr. Graves, you have someone here to see you, said his secretary. Hey, Mr. Daniels. Daniels, uh, Mr. Daniels, Daniels. Daniels can't quite say that I remember him. Well, he said, he, well, he said he's a victim of one of the cases that you were trying. Okay, Natalie, I'll be right there. As Dan made it to the lobby, he looked at the man who had came to visit. Yes, may I help you? You don't remember me, do you? Sean Daniels. Can't say that I do, but what can I do for you, Mr. Daniels? The man started walking closer to the prosecutor. He acted as if he was going to shake his hand. As Dan reached out to grab hold of the man's hand, he was blindsided by a punch to the left side of his temple. Dan stumbled to try to grab hold of a desk in an attempt to catch his fall. The man then began to wrap his hands around the neck of the prosecutor. It's because of you that my wife is on drugs, the man cried as he continued to choke him. Dan then remembered who the man was as he tried to break free from his grasp. It was no use because the man was set on killing him. Dan could see it in his eyes before he started to black out. After the first punch was thrown, the secretary had called for security. They couldn't have got there quick enough. As they got the man off of him, Dan just lay there trying to catch his breath. Several of the other prosecutors who came out of their office to watch headed back to their rooms to resume their work. What in the hell happened to your face? asked Sylvia as Dan walked into the house. I got into a fight. With who? Floyd Mayweather? One of the participants of the program responded Dan. He must not have been too happy with the results, huh? Did you kick his ass? That nigger didn't stand a chance. Ooh, I like it when you talk like that. Oh, by the way, that waitress from the restaurant wanted to know if we wanted to party tonight. Not tonight. I'm kind of sore. My neck is hurting. Damn, Dan, I can see the marks from here. Did he choke you? Must have happened while we were tussling. I'll be all right. Why don't you go to the room and lie down? I'll be there in a little later with a Jolly Rancher. Dan smiled as he headed to the bedroom. He knew the things that his wife was able to do with a Jolly Rancher. He still remembered the last time that his wife implemented the candy into their sex acts. It felt so good to him that after she got finished, he wound up driving across town to buy her some ice cream that she was craving. Dan had one order of business that he had to take care of before he headed out to work. Picking up his phone, he scrolled through the contacts until he found the number of Tom Herring. This is Tom, he said as he answered the phone. Hey Tom, it's Dan. I just needed to touch base with you before you let it out this morning. You called just in time because I was heading out the door. What's up, buddy? I just needed to know if I could still count on you with that last one. Of course, Dan. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for believing in the work that we're doing. We appreciate all the sacrifices that you've made. You have our full backing in making sure that you get elected. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome, Tom. It's the least we can do. But there is one thing that I feel is imperative to tell you. What's that, Dan? Do not make this look so obvious. I'm sure the press will be following this one very closely to see how, seeing how it's high profile. Got you, Dan. 
So Tom, is there anything I can do for you? Actually, there is, Dan. My meth head sister-in-law just got busted for welfare fraud and cash and stolen checks. I need for it to go away. Consider it done. Thanks again, Dan. Hey, you scratch my back and I scratch yours. So Tom, how's the missus? Are you two still enjoying the honeymoon? He's laying in the bed. I think he's came down with the flu. Dan didn't, didn't approve of Tom's homosexual lifestyle. He only acted as though he did to gain Tom's support. Sorry, Tom, I hope that he feels better. Thanks, Dan, I'm sure he's a pre he'll appreciate hearing that. I guess that's all, Tom. I'll see you in about an hour. Stacey Mitchell from Channel 7 News stood outside the courtroom as Stephen walked past. Why'd you do it, Stephen? She asked while trying to enter a microphone closer to pick up his response. I didn't do what he said while trying to stop walking so that he could address her. The deputy commanded him to keep moving. As if the direct order that he gave wasn't enough, he helped Stephen obey by pushing him from behind into the courtroom. The judge stared at Stephen as he shuffled into the courtroom. She had never been with a black man before, but found him to be attractive. She quickly shook off any fantasy that she may have had for the moment because his awkwardness was a turnoff. The shackles forced him to take short strides on top of the cinnamon-colored carpet as he neared her bench. His wife looked on. She felt heartbroken to see her husband in the bright orange-colored wardrobe he was wearing. The judge asked Stephen to spell out his name. She then asked him his date of birth to make sure that it matched what was listed in the record. As she began to read off the charges, Stephen's wife was unable to keep her emotions in check. The judge saw her crying uncontrollably, which caused her to feel a sense of pleasure as she watched. The state is represented by Daniel Graves, the judge stated. Mr. Lyles, will you be able to afford counsel? Excuse me, said Stephen. Will you be able to afford counsel, said the judge once more. What is counsel, asked Stephen. The judge looked annoyed by his question. An attorney, Mr. Lyles. Can you afford an attorney? No, ma'am. The court now appoints public defender Tom Herring. Tom stood up and grabbed the case file from the clerk of the court. Dan smiled to himself, remembering the conversation that he just had with Tom about an hour ago. We will meet back here next month for the pretrial hearing, said the judge. The deputy then came and escorted Stephen out of the courtroom. Stephen sat in the bullpen as the door opened. As he walked out, he recognized the figure that stood in front of him as the same man that grabbed his file from the desk. Mr. Lyles, my name is Tom Herring, he said as he gave him a weak handshake. Something about Tom didn't sit right with Steve. It was more than his feminine mannerisms that rubbed him the wrong way. It was too early to place his finger on exactly what was causing the uneasy feelings. Mr. Lyles, I think we can beat this case. Those words that the attorney spoke helped to set Steve's mind at ease. My advice is that you don't discuss your case with anybody at the jail. You know the guy that you share your cell with? That so-called jailhouse attorney? You just never know. Somebody could be looking for a way out of trouble and try to testify against you. I've read the affidavit of your statement saying that you didn't do it. I didn't, said Stephen. Mr. Lyles, that's not my concern. My only concern is making sure that you go home. Here's my number. By the way, Mr. Lyles, you look kind of familiar. Have we met somewhere before? Steve caught on real quick to what the attorney was insinuating and said, I can assure you that we have it. I'm sorry, must have been someone who looked like you. All right, Mr. Lyles, after I look over your case, I'll be to the jail to visit you. Douglas Garner was traveling up to speeds 90 miles per hour on the intersection when he pulled over, was pulled over by two highway patrolmen. As they approached the vehicle, they tapped on the driver's side's window. License and registration, said one of the officers. Douglas rolled down his window to crack only to a crack only big enough to slide out the, what the officer requested. As the officer walked back towards his police cruiser, the officer requested for Douglas to roll down the window even further. Once Douglas obliged, the officer could smell the strong presence of alcohol. 
Also looking under the influence was a 14-year-old girl. What are you doing, Mr. Gardner? What do you mean what I'm doing? With the girl, said the officer. What the hell? It's none of your business what I'm doing. That's my fucking niece. I'm taking her home. The other officer was busy running Douglas's name through the system to check for warrants. It sickened the officer to see all the charges that Douglas had been arrested for. Child molestation, charges dating back all the way into the 80s. Douglas was still arguing with the other police officer. Do you want to know why I've never seen a day in prison? Do you want to know who my nephew is? Dan fucking Graves. As long as I keep him paid, I'll never see a prison cell. The officer was, that was still in the cruiser heard what Douglas was spouting and made a phone call. Hey, we pulled over a man who claims to be your uncle and he's broadcasting your business. Is anybody in the car with him, said the man on the other end, who was none other than Dan Graves. Yeah, it looks like a little girl, said the officer. The officer then listened to what Dan had to say. Sure thing, Mr. Graves. The officer made his way back to Douglas's Mercedes. Listen, Mr. Gardner, my partner's gonna take the girl home and I need for you to come with me. I'll bring you back to your car after you sober up a little bit. After Douglas got into the back of the squad car, the officer drove further down the interstate. After he came upon the second exit, he made a left off the ramp. Where are we headed, asked Douglas. I've got a real woman for you to meet, said the officer. How old is she, asked Douglas. Just barely 18, said the officer. The officer then pre proceeded to drive down an alley and park behind an abandoned house. All right, Mr. Gardner, she's in there waiting for us. Douglas struggled to get out of the back cru seat cruiser. It was, real, it was a real cramped space, which was too small for his 350-pound body. He finally was able to get out. The police officer allowed him to lead the way. As Douglas came to the back door, he turned around and asked the officer should he not. As he turned around, the officer shot him point-blank range in the center of his forehead. Stephen could hardly sleep, waiting for the morning to come. He continued to pace his cell, anticipating the arrival of his wife. His constant moving woke up his cellmate. Expecting somebody, he asked. My wife answered Stephen. There was a window located near their bunk that gave them a panoramic view of the parking lot. His wife's SUV pulled up. Even though Stephen's window was several stories above ground, he could still see the way his wife's clothes clung to her nightshade ass as she got out. Judging by the catcalls that he heard from the neighboring cells, he could tell that he wasn't the only one checking out his wife's figure. He had a pair of state-issue clothes that were in a little better shape than the others that he had received. Far from the Ralph Lauren threads that he was used to wearing, he still wanted to look his best when his wife came to see him. Lyles, you have a visit, yelled one of the deputies. The other inmates looked on in jealousy, upset because their family members had chosen to sever ties with them. The inmates failed to accept responsibility and admit that it was them who had burned their bridges. So instead, they blamed their families for leaving them high and dry. With each step that Stephen took, his heart beat faster. Looking forward to inhaling his wife's perfume and feeling her body press against his. There she was, wearing those gray shorts that he liked. He was surprised they allowed her to come in wearing those fitted shorts because of the way that they showcased her curves. As he walked closer, she held out her arms longing for his embrace. He quickly picked up the hint, but the truth of the matter was that he wanted the same. How have you been, she asked him. Scared, he responded. I didn't do it. I know, Stephen. The lawyer said that he's pretty positive that we'll beat this. What do you mean? Why would there even be any doubt? You weren't even there. I know. What happened, Stephen? And I want the truth. Look, that night that I didn't come home until five in the morning, that's where I was. For what? I needed to talk to somebody. 
Why not try to talk to your wife? Because I was ashamed. Ashamed of what? Because I was on drugs. That's why we were behind on bills. So you weren't out cheating? No, babe. Cal loaned me the $7,000. Stephen, who would loan that kind of money to a crackhead? I mean, sorry. Who would just loan out that type of money? I helped Cal a few years ago. I gave him some advice on some stocks. He invested and wound up doing very well for himself. He said that if I ever needed anything just to ask, he felt that he owed me. His wife finally understood. So how's DJ? Wondering where his father is. You haven't told him? I'm sorry, Stephen. I couldn't think of a nice way to explain to a seven-year-old that his father was locked up for killing three people. I understand. It's probably best that he doesn't know. How are they treating you, asked his wife. I don't know how they do it. This is something that I can't get used to. I see that you wore those shorts that I like. His wife noticed Stephen staring between her legs, so she decided to give him a better view and open them up a little wider. Such a perv, she said as she saw his eyes grow wider. The deputy walked over to tell them that they only had about five more minutes left on their visit. She decided to, he decided to grab hold of his wife's hand and use the last remaining minutes for them to pray. After they finished praying, his wife opened up her legs a little more to give her husband something to remember her by. As they stood up to say their farewells, Stephen pulled her close to give her a long, passionate kiss. She could feel his hardness pressing against her as they held each other. Think about what I showed you when you play with yourself tonight, she said while whispering in his ear. I heard that you guys do that a lot in jail. I'll go home and do the same, as she said and playfully bit her bottom lip. As she prepared to walk away, she gave Stephen that come fuck me look that she always seemed to turn that always seemed to turn him on. Dan walked into the judge's chambers not knowing what to expect. You wanted to see me, Heather? Yeah, I wanted to tell you personally that I was sorry to hear about your uncle. I saw it on the news this morning. Thank you, Heather. I thought it was odd that they found his Mercedes on the interstate. What the hell was he doing in a crack-infested Manorfield housing edition? I've been trying to figure that one out myself, Dan said. I hope that they find the bastard so he can feel the same pain that your, same pain that your family's feeling. You know what's crazy? The old man listed me as the beneficiary on his life insurance policy. You know, Dan, I remember when Graham had his accident. I went through hell trying to collect from the insurance company. His little mistress thought that she would, he would have listened, listed her, thinking that she was entitled when I was the one who endured 15 years of a sexless marriage. I thought that you had a great sex life, Heather. I did, thanks to you, and double thanks to you for his little so-called accident that he had. If I didn't know any better, I say that your uncle must have really pissed somebody off. Somebody really sexy, she said, she said staring at the prosecutor while biting gently on the right arm of her glasses. Stephen counted up the days in his head. Upon realizing that it would only be 25 more days until his freedom, he couldn't help but feel a sense of relief. Stephen kept himself occupied by reading and exercising. It helped him to lose track of the days along with the fact that he refused to look at the calendar. Before he knew it, a whole month had went past. How's it going, Mr. Herring? Asked Stephen. Asked Stephen as the lawyer met him in the bullpen. I got your message, Mr. Louse. Now, you sure that you want to file for a fast and speedy trial? Yes, sir. You said that we're going to beat this, so I want to get home in the shortest amount of time possible. I think it's a good idea, Mr. Louse. There's just one thing that causes a little concern, Mr. Herring, and that is the evidence. Not to worry about it, Stephen. It's all circumstantial and fits well with your story. Well, it's time. 
As Stephen walked into the courtroom, his eyes scanned the audience. The focal point that caused him to smile was his wife waving at her man. Allowing her to be at the center of his attention, he failed to hear anything that else that the judge had said. Your Honor, my client is invoking his right to have a fast and speedy trial. Dan then looked at the judge and nodded his head in agreement. What it meant for him was not only disposing of this case quickly, but also disposing of Stephen's family. The judge looked at the calendar that was on her desk. This case will be set for trial next month on November 17th. Dan, Heather, and the congressman all decided to meet for lunch. Dan and Heather were already talking when Ted approached the table. Have a seat, Congressman. Hope I'm not interrupting anything, he said. No, we were just talking about you anyway, said Dan. I don't know if I like the sounds of that. It was nothing bad. Just her facial expressions when that girl over there was riding you, Dan said while pointing over at Fonda the waitress. Even Ted had to laugh at the memory. But on the other note, numbers are in and they show a 40% decrease in crime. Excellent, said Ted. Criminals are scared to do so much as jaywalk right now. Good, Ted replied. Stacy and her son DJ were sitting at the table at the other side of the restaurant. She looks familiar, asked, said Heather. Who, asked Dan. Her, she said, pointing at Stacy. Wait a minute, that's Stephen Lyle's wife. Pretty little thing. Nice body, too. Such a shame that she's going to be dead soon. And why the hell is that waitress spending so much time at her table? It doesn't take that long to place a damn order. Wow, Heather, if I didn't know any better, I'd say that you were jealous. Screw you, Dan. Well, I must be going, said the congressman. Keep up the good work. Fonda started to walk over to the table. Took you long enough, Heather stated after giving her a nasty look. Never mind her, Fonda. Can we get a couple of to-go boxes for our food? Leave it so soon, Fonda asked. Like you care, responded Heather. I'm sorry, did I miss something? Do we need to go somewhere and talk in private? Dan then stood up. Fonda, that's okay about the gold boxes. I have to get going, so I'll leave you two here so that y'all can sort things out. I have to get going too, said Heather. So you're not going to tell me what's wrong? I'm sorry, Fonda. I shouldn't have acted like that. I'll call you later. The dark atmosphere was illuminated by red and blue lights. The songs sung from sirens were heard in unison coming from the multiple blue and whites. Jonathan Ice was trying his best to elude capture. He had several of the city's finest from the North Precinct given chase to his Buick Century. The inside of his car was littered with evidence from the robbery that he had just committed, not to mention the weapon that he used to kill the cashier that was lying on the floorboard. The chase reached speeds up to 80 miles per hour. He almost hit several cars head on as he sped through the residential areas. Further up the road, he had, the police had placed stop sticks in the middle of the street, desiring to bring the chase to an end before somebody else got killed. Johnny unknowingly ran over the stop sticks, flattening two of his tires as soon as they made contact. The loss of treading didn't stop his determination as he tried to maneuver his car with only two tires still intact. After a couple of minutes of his commit committed effort, he lost control, crashing his car into a truck that was coming head on. Without hesitation, the police approached his car, wishing that he'd make a sudden move. That would give them the reason that they needed to pay him back for the 40-minute chase that he initiated. Johnny was too incoherent to put up a fight. Raising his hands, he surrendered, disappointed the the, disappointing the trigger-happy officers. Greed and the need for success had broken the moral compass that Tom had once had that used to direct his decisions. 
He sat in his office listening to classical music while looking over the DNA report that was done in the Laos case. The findings of the report would be a secret kept far away from the juror's ears. Instead of reaching the proper place of a file, it would be tucked away in a drawer among the miscellaneous papers. Just the thought of withholding evidence was unethical. Never mind the fact that the report showed the DNA that was contributed was from another source other than his client, Stephen Lyles. Jonathan agreed to an interview after he was booked into the county jail. His face was badly scarred from a combination of the glass from his windshield and the force from his airbag that had deployed. He refused to allow his disfigurement to prevent him from receiving his 15 seconds of fame. Stacy didn't want to give off the appearance that she was nervous. Before she walked in the processing center, she took several sips of the liquid curds that she had mixed with papaya juice. She then fixed her shirt so the right amount of cleavage would be seen on camera. As she entered the door, Jonathan called out to her name as if they already were well acquainted. Stacy, he said. I feel like I've known you all my life. I watch you every night. Damn, you look good in person. Mr. Ice, I just want to ask you a few questions. Let me guess, said Jonathan. You want to know why I did it? Okay, that's a good place to start, said Stacy. It's because I hate myself. I was diagnosed with HIV last year. I was too afraid to kill myself. I thought it'd be more rewarding to make others feel the pain that I had. Mr. Ice, do you understand if you're convicted what will happen to your family? Convicted? Why wait till then? Let me save the taxpayers from wasting money on a trial. Read my lips. I did it. Go ahead and kill my family right now. Fuck them. That's how I feel about them. That's how they feel about me. Matter of fact, here's the address. 43321 Leslie. Hell, you can even use my gun. Better yet, take me along. Let me do it. I love the new law. It's like I'm killing two birds with one stone. I'm a modern day suicide bomber. Since my life is over with, might as well take those who hate me with me. It's like committing a murder that I'll never be charged with. Stacy felt uneasy about the interview. She never met someone who was so hell-bent on wanting others to feel so much pain. However, she felt that this was a story that she needed. Maybe this would cause outrage in the public, which in turn would open their eyes for the need to change this law. Stacy signaled to the deputy's attempt to get the deputy's attention, letting them know that the interview had ended because she was in a rush to get back to the station so that the footage could be edited. Dan was in his office waiting on a conference call from Congressman Whitmore. The coffee that stood on his desk next to a picture of his wife when she was young had gotten cold. Heather was in her chambers waiting on the same phone call. As she scrolled through the online dating profile, she almost missed it when it came. Dan, Heather, I want to thank you all for all the hard work that you're doing. It's starting to pay off. Other states are looking into this. Other states are looking into this. They're wanting to see our our quarterly report to determine how effective our new sentencing guidelines have been. They're thinking about using our guidelines as a moral a model in their courts, but not just on the state level. The feds are also interested in implementing a similar sentencing statute. But that's not the good news. Dan and Heather both sat by eagerly waiting to hear what else was in the making. They're looking for someone to help them get started with the transition. People with experience and who are familiar with the, how this works. You guys are first on the list. So now, so know that your work is not in vain. Thanks, Ted. No need. You guys deserve it. Talk with you later. Ted? Ted, are you still there? Asked Heather, only to make sure that he had hung up the phone. That's good news, said Dan. Dan, I want to see how it feels, said Heather. Dan paused and waited for her to finish. He wasn't quite sure where she was going with the conversation. I want to see them cry, she added. I want to be the last face that they see. 
What exactly are you talking about? Stephen Lau's family. I want to be the one who kills them. But there's still another month until trial. Didn't you say the time was on our side, Dan? And he is? Then why wait? If Lau's is going to lose anyway, what difference does it make if they die next month or right now? But that's not the way the law works. So when did you start giving a damn about the law, Dan? Hell, we are the law. We take it into our own hands. Isn't that right, Uncle Douglas? Dan was caught off guard by what Heather just said. How does she know that he has something to do with his uncle's death? Why are you so quiet, Dan? Listen, Heather, just wait until after the trial and I'll make sure that you get your wish. Heather's motives was unclear. Dan began to wonder, was part of the reason she wanted to participate because of Fonda, the waitress, getting a little too friendly with, the Steve, with Steven's wife at the restaurant? Stacy had given the footage to the editing room. Fatigue started to set in due to the fact that she had been up for a while waiting on the interview. She decided to combat her tiredness by retreating to the break room to raid the supply of Red Bull that they kept in the fridge. She couldn't get Jonathan's words out of her head. The coldness that was in his eyes was something that she was trying hard to forget. So far, her attempts were unsuccessful, and so was the Red Bull. Her body had grown immune from years of consuming energy drinks and Adderall. As she walked back towards the editing room, she noticed that her boss was talking to the editors. Stacy could tell that something was wrong by the look of surprise that he had on his face when he saw her. Stacy, we're scrapping the interview. For what? Do you know the ramifications it would have if we put this out there? The public needs to see this. No, what the public needs to see is that the law works. So don't tell me you support this. No, we're scrapping it, Stacy, and that's final. This is bullshit. Stacy stormed up the station upset. Her boss tried to get her attention by calling her name, but she was in no mood to hear what he had to say. Stacy started to question her future at the station. As she sat at the bar drinking shots of tequila, though she was a regular at the restaurant, the bartender was shocked to see her there so early. He could tell that something was bothering her. By her fourth drink, she was no longer able to conceal it. They're so stupid, she blurted out under the influence. They can't see that what they're doing is criminal. What gives them the right to kill? They're not God. It's going to backfire, and when their stupid law does, I hope that they're the ones who get locked up. Stacy's drunk ramblings got the attention of the man who was sitting next to her. He turned his body towards her direction so that he could hear more of what she had to say. You have strong views, young lady. Have you ever thought about being a politician, asked the man. No, I'm in journalism. Stacy Mitchell, Channel 7 News. Nice to meet you, Stacy. My name is Ted. Now, please forgive me for meddling, but I couldn't help but notice that you're consuming a lot of drinks so early in the morning. It's just my boss. I'm so pissed right now. I have the perfect story that will show the public just how absurd this law really is. But my boss really refuses to air the story. But mark my words, I'm going to find a way to get this story out to the public. Good for you, then. Well, I must be going. It was nice meeting you. As Congressman Whitmore walked out of the restaurant, he proceeded to call Stacy's boss. The conversation was short. The end result was that Stacy's career at the station would be over, effective immediately. As the two drove past, they noticed Fonda trotting down the porch, walking towards her car. Isn't that the waitress, Fonda? It is. I see our friend is quite the whore, Ted said as they cruised past the house. Makes me want to do this even more, Heather said as they commenced to circle the block. About that time they had made it back, Fonda was just in driving off. As the two cars passed, Fonda and Heather looked each other in each other's direction and locked eyes on one another. Do you think she saw us, asked Ted. 
Not at all, replied Heather, lying to the congressman. In fact, Heather's jealousy was hoping that Fonda had saw her. Dan will never be the man you are, she said, gently grazing his genitals through the khaki-colored pants that he was wearing. Tom was about to leave the office when he got the phone call. You have a collect call from Patricia Herring, said the recording. Tom immediately pressed the number on the dial to accept the call. Pat, what are you doing back locked up? You just got out. Got out? Are you fucking serious? I thought you said this case was going to get dismissed. I just went in front of the judge on a bench trial, guilty on every charge. I hate you. You're such a fucking liar. So much for having people in high places. Thought one of your friends was going to help me. Whoever he was, you must not have screwed him right. Before Tom could get a word in, the next sound that he heard was that of the dial tone. Heather gazed at herself in the heart-shaped mirror that was atop of Stacy's cherry oak dresser. She had no intentions of wiping the blood that was smeared on the left side of her chin. The melody of the screams that she heard continued to play over and over in the back of her head. As she closed her eyes, she remembered listening to the crescendo of cries which had been music to her ears. She traced her fingers along the scratch across her face that Stacy had given her. The mark was barely visible under the blush that covered Heather's tanned face. Stacy lay in the bed trying to hold on to what little bit of life she still had left. The judge stared in amazement, proud of the multiple stab wounds that decorated Stacy's by naked body. Heather walked her over slowly to where Stacy was lying. She took her hand and caressed Stacy's breast, pressing firmly enough to allow the blood that was coming from it to bleed out quicker. As she stood over Stacy, she held out a piece of DJ's blood-soaked pajamas that she ripped off to serve as a souvenir. Laughing at the pain that reflected in her victim's eyes, she stabbed her once more so that she could watch the exact moment that her life was leaving out of her body. As Jonathan was doing push-ups in his cell, he heard the keys sounding as if they were getting closer. Before he knew it, there were three deputies standing in front of the bars of his cell. Figuring that he had only ten more push-ups to go before finishing his set, he thought he'd wait until he was done before seeing what they wanted. The officers weren't about to stand around and allow him to complete his workout. As they rolled back his bars, they immediately walked into the cell, interrupting his last few reps. I need you to cuff up, cuff up, Ice, said one of the deputies. What the hell for, he asked. Looks like you got a visitor. Jonathan was, Jonathan was locked in his cell 23 hours a day. He treated any time that he got to spend outside of his cell like a field trip. While they marched, Jonathan through the corridors of the county jail. He tried to take his time so he could take in the sights. The scenic route was a short trip because their destination was reached in less than five minutes. Jonathan was walked through a door into a room that was occupied by a middle-aged man who was in bad need of a shave. Have a seat, Mr. Ice. I'm Detective Charles Spencer. So to what I owe the pleasure, asked Jonathan. Well, seems like your fingerprint and DNA were found at the crime scene. Jonathan interrupted him. Let me guess. Man, wife, son, all stabbed to death about a couple months ago. Husband and wife were both naked. Wife's titties were about yay big, clean shaven. Husband hung like a horse. I miss old cow. But he sure gave me something to remember him by. HIV. Damn, you guys are late. Innocent man almost lost his family because of y'all. I have to admit it, though. It would have made a great hell of a story. Probably a bestseller. Y'all got the wrong man locked up. I did it. And I'm glad I did it. Dan rushed into Heather's chambers. What's wrong, Dan? She asked him. You look like you've seen a ghost. What did you do, Heather? What are you talking about? Last night, what did you do? I have no idea what you're talking about, Dan. 
Stephen Lau's wife and son were stabbed to death last night. Oh, wow. Looks like somebody beat us to it. Guess they couldn't wait for the trial. There's not going to be a trial, Heather. Time double-crossed us. Lau's is being released. Looks like the person who did this confessed. I don't know what to say, Dan. I feel sorry for him. Any suspects? No, but I have my own ideas. We'll save them for tonight, Dan. And what's going on tonight? Another night of fun, sweetheart. What kind of sick bitch are you, he asked. The kind who likes to fuck. Stephen underwent a wide array of emotions as he sat alone in the house. The smell of death still permeated the air. He didn't want to go on with life, not without Stacy, not without his son. Memories flooded his mind as he placed a gun into his mouth. Heather paraded around her house naked as she fixed Ted and Dan both a drink. She continued to look at the clock in anticipation. Through the window, the trio noticed lights from a car as it pulled into the driveway. Heather's eyes lit up as she hurried towards the door. It was Fonda. It took her long enough, she thought, once she saw for certain that it was Fonda's car. Now the party can really get started, she said while walking past Dan as he patted her on the ass. She slowly turned around and gave him a provocative look. You two need to go ahead and take your clothes off, she said. Your wish is my command, replied Ted as he began taking off his shirt. Heather opened up the door. But instead of Fonda, Stephen Lyle stood at the doorway, aiming a handgun directly at the judge's head. As a shot dropped her to the ground, he proceeded to shoot the others. The cocaine slowed down the movements of the prosecutor and congressman. Before they realized what was going on, it was already too late. Stephen stood over the both of them as he emptied the cartridge into their lifeless body. He then took out his phone. Fonda, he said as she answered, I'm about to turn myself in. Why, Stephen? Because they need to see. Hopefully this will cause them to change that law. I believe it's what your sister would have wanted me to do. You were always good to her, Stephen. Stephen began crying as he heard his sister-in-law's words. Thank you, sis. I love you. The words of Stacy Mitchell. As I finished this novel, it, is, it has been two years since they've done away with the sentence-in-law. I never got a chance to tell Congress Congresswoman Whitmore I told you that I would get this story out to the public somehow. However, I knew that it would be in the form of a book, though. I never knew that it would be in the form of a book, though. Thank you.